0: Well, good morning, Antioch. It's great to be here with you again. I think Ken... Esta- yeah, good morning. Good morning. I think Ken's already established the fact that I'm old. Some of the people who have never seen me before, he's not that old. He's primal life. Anyway, it's great to be here. I want to speak with you today, and um, it's a privilege to be a part of this series and... This series on the desert wanderings, a very, an extremely interesting part of the Old Testament. And it's a surprising, we read it, we read through the Pentateuch, and we come to this place where we find that uh, Israel, this privileged people, as they're hitting hard times in the desert, these tough lessons of faith that they're hitting in the desert, that they actually began thinking. They began looking back at their life, and they were actually saying, you know what, Egypt looks good. I know, I know that life was tough, but at least I knew what was going to happen next. And, and we're in this confusing process of following a God who surprises us and is only giving us the next step and often disappoints us. I, it just looks good, the life we had before though it was miserable, was a misery I was used to. And we look at this and we read it and we go, yeah, that's absurd. What a silly, foolish, stupid decision. Today I want to maybe help us think about it in our terms by shooting ahead to a book in the New Testament. A book in the New Testament. There is a book in the New Testament as we look through the 66 books of the Bible, there is this one book that deals specifically with that occurrence and it teaches Christians lessons of faith from from that time. And what we find is, if we're even considering, you know, I'm just so tired of having to trust God for the next thing. I never knew that following Christ would be this difficult. The writer of the he, of Hebrews, so if you could turn to the book of Hebrews in your New Testament, takes that lesson and tells us that there is more at stake than you ever imagined. There was a lot at stake for that generation of Israel, if you've read the story. God said to them, okay, To this generation, and I believe it was a redeemed generation, they had all trusted in God's message to be redeemed from slavery. Every single one of them had applied the blood of the lamb to the the doorpost of their home. They had been delivered through the Red Sea, and God wants them to enter into the rest of his good and perfect will for them, where they would be the significant people of the world. Who would begin to live out and to message God's solution for a broken world? That was where he wanted them to go. He wanted them to rest in his provision. And it didn't mean that life would be easy, it just meant that it would be more meaningful than anyone else could ever experience. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, the writer of Hebrews says to a generation of Jewish Christians who are going through really, really difficult times. The book of Hebrews is written to a Jewish congregation of Christians somewhere in the Roman Empire during a severe persecution. And for these Jewish believers, the severe persecution was especially difficult. Because to declare yourself a follower of Christ in the Jewish culture meant that you were disenfranchised. So they're already living without any portfolio. They, their, their family is, their village, everyone. they probably all came from the synagogue. It's in some place where they all know one another. they were worshiping in the same synagogue, they hear the gospel, they begin coming to Christ, and they establish this little fledgling church. And then comes the severe. Roman persecution of Christians. And every Sunday morning, there would be fewer in their congregation, maybe one less family, one less member of that little congregation. And what they were saying was, this is so disappointing. I never thought it would be this hard. I'm just going to get, I'm going to go stealthy here. I'm a Christian. I just don't, it's just too hard to follow Christ. And the writer of Hebrews, a very eloquent writer, who probably, my personal view is, he was probably one of the shepherds of this little congregation, writes this letter. It's more of a sermon than a letter. Chapter 4, verse 11. Since they're so familiar with their Old Testament, He said, thus we must make every effort to enter that rest so that no one may fall by following the same pattern of disobedience. And I take the rest that Hebrews is speaking of to be the same rest that he's using as the example. It would be the rest of becoming God's people that we're supposed to be, of representing him in this broken, fallen world, to be a part of the solution. Those, that generation that did not enter into the rest, realized the next generation realized that they were living on the wrong side of history. God was moving history forward, and the brokenness of the world was going to be redeemed by one man's faith, Abraham, by his descendant, this coming Messiah, and this would be the one who would redeem this broken world, and they were given that responsibility. So the rest was to be in the promised land, and to be the people that God recreated them to be, delivering them from slavery. And I think it's the same rest that we're speaking of in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is an often misrepresented book. It's misrepresented in so many ways. People are afraid of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews can be a little... You know, it can be a little confusing. It's all about the Old Testament. Seems like got these sacrifices, got Psalm 95, Psalm 100, And then they got this, you know, this Melchizedek dude. I can remember as a brand new Christian talking to someone about the book of Hebrews. And I didn't know, I mean, I didn't know the book had the Bible had books. I was so new. I was right off the street as a Jesus movement convert. And and I was saying, I said, I said to one of the guys that was discipling me, what's this book of Hebrews? He's like, whoa. Watch out, man. It's got Melchizedek in it. I was like, Melchizedek who? Melchizedek. That is one, man, deep, deep. Stay away from it. So I did. I stayed the heck away from Hebrews for all those years. And it's also misrepresented, I think, because it's typically used to scare the pajaz out of Christians. I, you know, It's like, hey, wait a minute here, what about this? So it does have six warning passages in it. They're the sternest warning passages, two Christians. I believe they're all two Christians. I take them seriously. What isn't misrepresented typically is the purpose of the book of Hebrews. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to exhort Christians to follow Christ by staying connected to community, The book of Hebrews, especially, like every book in the New Testament, it's not about cowboy Christians. It's not about me right, reading the Bible and deciding that me in and of myself, I'm gonna be dedicated to Christ, and it's gonna be just between me and Jesus. A book of Hebrews is this exhortation, this pleading with the people of God, to stay engaged in community, even when life is tough, even in the toughest part. What's the toughest part about community? We have to live with Christians. But the Lord Jesus says, that's what I want, because that's best for your Christian life. And life is tough, and life is disappointing. But we tend to do the same thing that the Exodus generation. We look back and we go, well, I remember in my life before I became a Christian? It just seemed so simple. I mean, we forget the, far, the part that we were, you know, addicted and screwed up and wounding everybody in our lives and being wounded by everyone, but didn't have to get up on Sunday mornings, didn't have to be involved in all this stuff. I'd have people be, you know, hurt my feelings. So it is to exhort Christians to follow Christ by staying connected to community. But so many times it's misrepresented and his method is is misrepresented. We're told that the way that we're going to do this is by scaring the pajaz out of Christians, by turning to those warning warning passages and guilting and shaming them into following. You dirty little dirtbag. Look what it says right here. You think you're going to heaven? I got news for you right here. I'm going to heaven because I'm pretty good. I'm good enough. You're not quite there yet. The warning passages are there. They're important. They, uh, there are six of them. But the big message of the book of Hebrews is larger than the warning passages. The big picture of the book of Hebrews is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3. This is the therefore. Paul does this in Romans. He has a therefore. The writer of Hebrews has a therefore. This is one of the most powerful therefores in all of the New Testament. In Koine Greek, there was a real common usage of a therefore, where they would combine all three inferential inferential. Uh, connector words in, the, in in Greek, all the therefores and, the, and so what, they would combine all three of them and make a new word out of them. For some reason, the writers of Scripture stayed away from that extremely emphatic therefore. Paul uses it once in 1 Thessalonians, and the writer of Hebrews uses it here. So in Hebrews chapter 12, when he says therefore, he means r- really therefore. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, speaking of the Old Testament saints, and as we read on, I think it's speaking of those Christians who are with Jesus now, we must get, I'm sure somebody's going to ask that at uh, the uh, Redux. Are you mean They're there. I, yeah, I think they're there. I think they're watching. That's my radical view of that. We must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set before us. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer, this is a key word in the book of Hebrews, Archegus, the pioneer, the trailblazer, the one that goes before us, and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. You may be weary in your soul right now and ready to give up. You might be feeling tricked by God, let down by God. You never understood it'd be this hard to follow Christ. It just feels as if, if he's really God, he could fix this in a minute. And the understanding that he could. I wrote a whole book on this called When God Breaks Your Heart. I have a vicious leukemia. And I live with the absolute, sure knowledge that God could heal me in a heartbeat, but he doesn't. So what do I do? And they're not going to be like this. The writer of Hebrews says, I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. What? Just what a rocking verb. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The the Greek verb there means to take my eyes off of one thing and put them on another, to take my eyes off my circumstances to take their eyes off of the persecution, to take their eyes off of how difficult it was to be connected in community in this Jewish subculture in the Roman Empire, to take my eyes off my disease, to take your eyes off the relationships that let you down, to take your eyes off of the fact that Jesus isn't taking care of your money the way you think he should, and to put your eyes on something else, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. When he says, think on him, this is another awesome verb. It, is, it could be translated gaze. It's a verb used of the way that an artist looks at the subject she or he is painting or sculpting. They become totally engrossed in that subject. They know every little detail so that they can recreate it on the canvas or in a sculpture. So the writer of Hebrews knows... This, the longer we look to Jesus, the more we consider him, the more we're going to want to follow him. His big idea is not to scare the crap out of Christians. His big idea is to remind us of who it is who loves us. So there's this compelling portrait in the book of Hebrews. And I just want to take you through the entire book. It will be about four hours. I just want to take you through the highlights. What he's going to say is, to these Jewish Christians, you think it was a, a knucklehead decision that the Exodus generation wanted to go back to Egypt. I want you to understand that no one would make a greater or more foolish decision than a new covenant Christian, a new covenant follower of God. We are followers of Jesus. The word Kraton, Um, in the Greek, better, is a key word in the book of Hebrews. And what he's saying is Jesus is better than anything and anyone ever in the history of all of God's revelation. This is the one that we're following. Jesus is better than the angels. We know that the Second Temple Jews were really into angels. Uh, He is better than the angels, and he wants to make this point. Jesus is better than the angels because they serve him. He's the son of God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. After God spoke long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in a son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he created the world. The son is the radiance of his glory and the representation of his essence. And he sustains all things by his powerful powerful word. And so when he had accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thus he became far better. He became so far better than the angels for he has inherited a name superior to theirs. He is the son of God. Paul in that great New Testament hymn that they probably were singing around the campfires in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says the same thing. Often we as Christians, we treat Jesus kind of like the little brother of the Trinity. But this passage in Colossians 1, 15 through 20 say that the Jesus who loves us, the Jesus who we're asked to follow is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Jesus was, not only is he the Son of God, he was totally, is now totally and authentically human. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people for since he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are tempted so not only is he the god of the universe the creator and the sustainer of all things this one that we, who we follow he also volunteered to become human and he's still authentically and totally human today even though he's also divine seated at the right hand of the father I love what N.T. Wright says about, about this passage. He says, Jesus is our man, a real man in heaven. He didn't just go back to being, he didn't go back to being just God again. So it wasn't like Jesus came to earth, you know, dealt with his family and all of that, crucified, resurrected, ascended, got to the, to, the, to the superior altar that he's a part of, seated at the, at the right hand of God, he didn't go, whoo, man, I am glad that's over with. I'm telling you, being human sucks. I got colds, I stubbed my toe, my family tried to get me committed, all my friends forsook me, those disciples couldn't even stay awake, I'm so glad to be back here again. No, he is not only this awesome transcendent God, but he knows what it feels like to be me. And he knows what it feels like to be you. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, by the way, since we have a great, is perfect tense, meaning that'll never change. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. The one who has been tempted, again in the perfect tense. He's been tempted, he's been trialed, and he'll never forget what that's like. In every way, just as we are, yet without sin, therefore let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help whenever we need it. I just finished a really difficult year. In the 15 years since I've had this leukemia, I've had two bad years. Last year was one of them. And the times, I mean, I read through my journal last year, and my journal entries were so shallow. Jesus, I just don't know. I don't feel good. Life sucks. I suck. I'm sick. Here's what I need to know about Jesus. He wasn't saying, here we go again. Dental leukemia, boy. Griping about the way things are. He is whispering in the Father's ear. It is hard. It is hard. And he's saying to me, Ed, I don't care if it's a bad day, your worst day, you just come on into my presence. I'd love to hear what's on your heart. The book of Hebrews is that he never, he hardly ever tells us exactly what we want to hear. Like he doesn't join in our agenda. He likes listening to our heart, but then he says, okay, but my agenda is to follow me, to make a difference in this broken world. He is the true high priest, chapter 7, verse 28. Uh, For the law appoints as high priests men subject to weakness, but the word of solemn affirmation that came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The only point of this whole Melchizedek thing is that Jesus is so special. He's not a Levitical priest who whose appointment came because of his ancestry. And to these second temple Jews, why would they want a Levitical priest? The Levitical priest had turned political, they had just grabbed power. Says no, he is a special kind of priest, the one who shows up when you need him, and God always meant to appoint him the priest of the new covenant. So just like Melchizedek, he's our high priest because God chose him to be our high priest. He's a priest appointed especially by God, because we are God's special people, we new covenant followers of Christ. Turn on over to chapter 8, verse 6. Jesus mediates a new covenant, a better covenant. He's better than the angels because he created the angels. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is the very son of God. He is God in every way he's better than any other friend we would have because he's the best God ever because he is the God who became human, authentically human, and he knows right now what it feels like to be me. He is the true high priest who loves to represent us at a superior altar and he has mediated a superior covenant. Chapter 8, verse 6. But now... Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant that he mediates is also better and is enacted on better promises. On over to chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? It's a superior promise. The Old Testament the Old Covenant was a system of barriers between God's people and him. You, you, there was one court you could stay in. There's one, if you weren't a Jew, you couldn't even get into that, to that court. Then there was another court and another court. And the only one guy one time a year could come into the presence of God. It was a system of barriers between God's people, even the chosen people and God, because of sin when the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus sat down as a high priest, that is radical. The high priest, the, the priests of Israel never sat down. There was too much sin. There was too much junk. There was too much crud in their lives. They were always having to kill something to make payment for sin. But now on the new covenant. Jesus said in the upper room, I am now initiating the new covenant. Jeremiah said, here's your problem. You might try real hard, but you don't have a new heart. Now we are given this new heart. We are new covenant followers of Christ. We are the most blessed, the most privileged generation in the history of God's dealings with humanity. Not only are we made clean by the blood of Christ we are made new by the blood of Christ the gospel we've got the gospel We're so narrow the gospel it's only about going to heaven when I die and I'm going to go to heaven when I go to, I want to go to heaven when I die and I'm glad I get to go to heaven when I die but the gospel isn't only good news to me Christ died for my sins and arose the moment I believe in Jesus Christ, the gospel becomes good news about me. I am not who I used to be. I do not have to live the way I used to live. I am a set-free father. I am a set-free husband. I am a set-free friend. I am a set free citizen who can live by different values. So Jesus is better. All that Jesus offers us is appropriated through faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. I'm telling you, I don't think the opposite of faith is sin, I think the opposite of faith is control. That's what we're trying to do when we go back to Egypt. At least I could control things back there. Now, nah, I'm in this relationship with this mysterious God. I just heard a book about that. It's called The Grand Paradox, something like that. I, don't, I hear it's pretty good. By the way, it is really, really good. I love that book. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The God he's talking about there is Jesus Christ. There's this compelling portrait of Jesus. Look to him. Think about him. Paul says in Colossians 3, uh, meditate on him uh, who is everything to you. Therefore, look to Jesus and follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Now Romans, I mean Uh, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 makes more sense. Since we are surrounded by this cloud of weaknesses, take our eyes off of our problems and put our eyes on Jesus Christ. Meditate on Him. Hebrews finishes the story of the Old Testament. It finishes the story of the Old Testament. We are to respond to Jesus' love. Hebrews lets us know, this is the way a lot of Christians think of the, it gives us a different perspective, a perspective of the magnitude of the privilege. The book of Hebrews has the warning passages. Maybe someday I'll come back and I'll teach the warning passages. I think they're real, I think they have teeth in them, I think that they're sobering, and I think they're all to Christians. Christians. But that's the sub-theme of the book of Hebrews. The big picture of the book of Hebrews is, think about the magnitude of the privilege. See, a lot of Christians think of the New Testament as this new deal. And it is a new deal. It is a new covenant. But many times the way we think about it is, here's the Old Testament. You know, and God's like, come on, Israel, I'm rooting for you. Let's go. Come on, man. I've given you these priests. I've given you these kings. Let's go. These prophets. Come on, man. Ah, ah. Well, I'm going to take you into exile. Take you to Babylonia. All right, come back. Yeah, you're all fired up. Great. Oh, man. And then you get to Malachi, and it's like, oh, man, they just screwed it up again. So we often think of the New Testament as God going, oh, man. Now what should I do? What do you think, angels? I don't know. Hey, let's do some grace. I know what. I'll send my son. We'll have the church. Ah, that's not the way it is. The Old Testament ends unfinished. There is an anticipation of something more. We are a part of that last chapter. All that was hoped for, all that was promised, is realized in the son and in his People, When Jesus died on the cross, this little narrow view of redemption, that it's only about me, and it I am loved by Jesus, and it is about me. When Jesus died on the cross, he reconciled creation to God. When Jesus died on the cross, it jerked history to move irreversibly towards Christ's unshakable kingdom. And we're on that side of history. But to be on that side of history, the book of Hebrews says it's going to take sacrifice. There's going to be Hardship. What would you expect when God has made us a royal priesthood? Priesthood, when He's called us out of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love, we are counterculture. But Our counterculture is going to be the culture in the kingdom of God. And now we are privileged that it is erupting. And the book of Hebrews isn't, you know, a whip like, come on, Christians, let's go get it done. The book of Hebrews is an invitation. Look what you get to do. Look what you get to do. We're the people with the answers, sometimes you just gotta, well, I do it all the time, I just have to apologize for the church, for manipulative leaders, for those who have never met or appreciated Jesus because we've been given a faulty portrait, portrait of Jesus made in the image of threatened, petty human beings. The real Jesus never asks people to earn his love. But he does ask those of us who have received his love to live for him in this world. And there's a lot to give up. But the giving up, it's an invitation. He says, yeah, he says in Luke 14, to follow me will cost you everything but you won't miss any of it. Those of you who follow Christ, all the stuff that you've given up for Jesus, do you look back at it and go, well, that was a stupid decision to live for Jesus, and that one didn't work out. Jesus does ask those of us who have received his love to live for him in this world, even when life hurts so much that it takes our breath away. So look to Jesus when shame paralyzes you. Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself. He has paid for your sin. Look to Jesus when life hurts. Jesus is one of us. He's waiting to hear what we have to say because he knows what it feels like to be us. When life seems out of control, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, jarring history towards its final and glorious fulfillment. Life is never out of control. It is right on time. It is right on pace. And the only difference between an obedient follower of Christ and a disobedient follower of Christ who goes back to Egypt is those of us who count the cost and follow Jesus get to be a part of the big deal of the future of history. It's not, come on, lousy guy, people. It's like, hey, come on, man. This is awesome. When you feel weak, Jesus has given you a new heart, everything you need to live sacrificially for him. And as Peter calls this ailing and hostile world is yours. And when you feel alone, it's not true. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us at his throne of grace. So it's on my heart today that you would consider the real Jesus. Rather than the character of Jesus Christendom tries to introduce you to, the writer of Hebrews pleads with believers to look at the real Jesus because he knows that the more time we spend focusing on the real Jesus, considering who he is and the awesomeness of his person, the more we're going to want to follow him, the more we're going to trust him. Hebrews is an invitation to kingdom living accompanied by a warning. Desert experiences, tough times, suffering. Those times in life, you might be going through one right now. The writer of Hebrews says, tough times and suffering, that does not give you and me permission to disregard God's word and to disengage from community. This is, I deal with it all the time. I don't see somebody at Church of the Open Door, somebody that we've discipled, somebody that our heart is enmeshed with. We've been a part of all of their life. We've seen them. We've helped them with their children. Maybe we've married them. We've gone to be a part of their life. And then we don't see them for a while. And we'll contact them. Hey, haven't seen you for a while. Well, God doesn't really let me down lately. i got a lot of stuff going on. And I think their expectation was that, oh, you've gone through tough times? Oh, that's okay. Don't bother with church. Just leave Jesus out of your life until things get better. That is precisely when you need church the most and when I need Jesus the most. Hebrews is a gripping portrait of Jesus the Christ who can help us because he came down, became one of us. Walk on the same paths of life we walk on. The book of Hebrews says, it's a silly, foolish, and tragic error for a privileged New Covenant believer to return to the Egypt of our old life just because life is tough. So it's don't go back to Egypt. Uh, Yesterday, my daughter called me and she said, Dad, uh, there, there's, there's a really, really tough message, a, a tough message that we have to give to my granddaughter, sophomore in high school. My granddaughter walks with God and she's been planning on going on this, uh, on this trip with the church and the place where she's planning on going has become a very dangerous place. And our whole family agreed that she probably, that this isn't a good decision for her. And, and so we know, we, I knew that it would be hard for her. But yesterday my daughter called me and she said, Dad, are you sure this is what you think too? And I said, yes, sweetie, I think that, that's what I think. And she said, I think it's real important for this granddaughter to know that that's what you think. I think I was a pretty good dad. All my failures, I learned from them. Um, I am am one awesome grandfather. (laughs) So let me just give you a little history of this little girl. We live close to Disneyland. So I always take the grandchildren by themselves one at a time to Disneyland. Without the Gestapo, their parents, the no candy and ice cream group. So I still remember when she three or four years old. I take him to Disneyland, I take him to that right there at the end of Main Street. And I say, okay, so I can just picture her little face. And I say, okay, whatever you want today, whatever you want to eat, whatever you want to ride, we'll do it. And they look at me like, we humans are uncomfortable with grace. And so, but we do it. And at the end of the day, I take them there to the ice cream joint, and I just say, "Just want you to know that Papa loves you." And uh, I'm just, I, I really love you. The Bible has a word called grace, and that was what this day was all about. Now, I didn't know that a decade later, uh, the same little girl would be dealing with. Abandonment issues over divorce. I have this thing that I do with my girls. I tell this at church, the open door, and all the ladies in the church say, would you be my dad for a day? I do this with all my girls, both my daughters and my daughter-in-law and all my girl grandchildren. I take them shopping and I buy them a new outfit. Every time, I don't see them that often when I see them. I take them shopping I buy them a new outfit and I say, now the only thing is, Um, I want to be there when you buy it. You come out, you show it to me because I'm going to be excited about it. I have no taste. I don't care what you wear. But but it's a bribe and you're going to have to go with me and I'll buy you whatever you want and over a cup of coffee, we're going to talk about your life for at least an hour. Man, it's some rich times. But since the divorce, I will take this little girl's hands in mine after we get the outfit and I will say, Sweetie, wherever you are, whatever happens, you need me, you call me. I will drop my life for you. At my last, (laughs) I'm sorry. At my last birthday party, you know, we're going around the table, and everybody's going, yeah, you know, dad's pretty good for a bald guy. (laughs) And it came to this little girl. And they said, what do you want to say about Papa? And she looked at me. And I I mean, after this, I was ready to go to heaven. (laughs) She said, I have always only known love. From him. This is why they call me when there's a hard message and somebody needs to tell her what she doesn't want to hear. I have always only known love from Jesus. How shallow of me when he tells me something I don't want to hear, not to listen. This is a picture that for me just sums up the book of Hebrews. It is one of my favorite paintings, a guy by the name of Eugene Bernon. He's a Swiss wrote, uh, artist, 1898. It's Peter and John running to the tomb. Don't you love that picture? That's the book of Hebrews. Palestine was a dangerous place on Easter morning. They, couldn't, they didn't care. Get out of my way. I, maybe I could see Jesus. Consider the magnitude of the privilege when life is tough. God chose humanity to rule over all creation. And then we blew it as a race. We sinned, we devastated the creation, this creation that was supposed to bring glory to God. God then chose the nation Israel to represent him. They would be led by priests and kings. They would offer human praise and offering for sin. Israel and her priests and kings Blew it, they failed miserably, always knowing that that would be true. God always planned to send his own son to be both king and priest and to offer a once and for all sacrifice to remove the stain of sin on our hearts and his creation. The result is that history is moving irresistibly, towards the sun's unshakable kingdom, and we have been given the opportunity to share the truth that humanity and to live out the truth that humanity is desperate for. All that hurts us most deeply can be washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been invited into that story not because we've earned it but because we're loved. But not to a life of ease and happiness. To a life of sacrifice. A life on the right side of history. A life of selflessness. A life of giving up. A life of coming last. A life that is hard but glorious. It costs. It hurts. But it's worth it. Because we get to look in the face of the living God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The longer you look to Jesus, the more You're going to want to follow him. Father, I want to pray for those who may be here today who are going through tough times. There might be someone here who just showed up at church today, maybe embittered over the hardness of life right now. There may be those who are considering walking away from you because they feel you've disappointed them. I, I just pray, Father, that the book of Hebrews would speak to their heart. And let them know that that would be a very foolish decision. Not, not because you'd be angry with them, but because of all that they will miss. And then, Father, I pray for those who live with a caricature of Jesus that being a Christian is all about happiness and fun. And I, I pray, Father, we could straighten that out. It would be a, an accurate picture of a Jesus who loves but demands not because he wants us to perform but because he is privileging us to be a part of something that is bigger than our little lives help us to be those who seek the kingdom of God with all our heart and will not disengage from community because we know this is where we belong and we do beg you for this